If you would, take a Bible and join me in turning to Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter. Matthew 6, going to be reading verses 5 through 15, but dealing really um, over the next few weeks with verses 9 through 15, and today really just with the portion of verse 9. In a recent article on the Gospel Coalition website, Eugene Park wrote an article that resonated with me. It's titled, Prayer is Activism. Prayer is Activism. I want to read a few selected paragraphs. As our nation reels from George Floyd's death, many in the church feel compelled to do something. Responses have run the gamut from listening, learning, and lamenting to posting black squares on Instagram, donating, marching, and more. Yet in our rush to engage, many of us have neglected the most potent form of activism at our disposal, prayer to the sovereign God of the universe. Christians should never see prayer as the world does, as powerless good vibes and well wishes that allow one to wipe their hands clean of responsibility. I'm not saying that prayer should be the church's only functional response. But should it not be one of the first and foundational responses? In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, especially the passage we're going to look at this morning, John MacArthur writes this, The Bible teaches a great deal about the importance and power of prayer. Prayer is effective. It makes a difference. The effect of prayer of a righteous man, James says, can accomplish much. That's James 5.16. Abraham's servant prayed and Rebekah appeared. Jacob wrestled and prayed. And Esau's mind was turned from 20 years of revenge. Moses prayed and Amalek was struck. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed, and in 12 hours, 185,000 Assyrians were slain. Elijah prayed, and there were three years of drought. He prayed again, and the rain came. Those are but a small sampling of answered prayer just from the Old Testament. The only thing I would add to MacArthur's comments is that I have often that prayer makes a difference first in me before it makes a difference in my circumstances. I believe that often, in fact, the greatest impact that prayer has is the effect it has on my heart, my perspective, and my faith before it even affects my circumstances or the circumstances of others. And then when we turn to the New Testament, we find again and again and again the importance of prayer. Prayer is taught. Prayer is instructed. Prayer is exemplified. Prayer is answered many, many times. In Luke 11, one of Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Jesus' reply was a shorter version of what we find in our text this morning. 
from Matthew 6, what we call the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to look at that passage. We're going to begin to look at it this morning. So follow with me as I read beginning in verse 5 of Matthew 6 and read through verse 15. And when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if, we, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I want to point out three things from just part of verse 9 this morning. I had originally planned to preach this in two messages, but I think it's going to take at least three. So this morning, we're going to look at this phrase, Our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. And I want us to notice, first of all, the corporate responsibility that this prayer involves, or this phrase even. The corporate responsibility, our Father. Secondly, the confident expectation that this prayer encourages. Not only the corporate responsibility that is involved here, but the confident expectation that we can have. And then thirdly, the reverent approach that this prayer requires. First of all, notice the corporate responsibility that, that, that this prayer involves. Jesus teaches us to begin, not my Father, but our Father. And remember, back in verses 5 and 6, he's teaching us where are we to pray. He's talking about praying in your closet or in your room or in a, in a quiet, in a private place. Although, certainly this can be applied to corporate prayer when we are together, Jesus has in mind when we're, we are by ourselves during our, what we call, quiet time. Is it interesting to you, as it is to me, that, that Jesus would teach us to pray, our Father, even when we're alone, even when we're by our Selves. And then he adds in successive verses, which we'll look at later, that we are to pray about our daily bread, our debts, our need to be delivered from evil. Even when we're praying during our private prayer times, the needs of others, the good of others, and not just ourselves, should be on our minds and part of our prayers. We have a corporate responsibility even when we are praying 
by ourselves. One writer says this, Jesus did not teach us to pray, my Father in heaven, but our Father in heaven. Christians are not to to pray in splendid isolation and not to construe spirituality in terms of the rugged individualism which stamps so much Western thought. The Apostle John reflects a major New Testament theme when he says in 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father, that is God, loves his child as well, that is, other Christians. There is no doubt a place, there is no doubt a place for praying as an individual to God. But the general pattern of our praying must be broader than that. Therefore, when I as a follower of Christ among many address our Father, my concern is to embrace our needs and our good, our daily bread, our sins, our temptations, and not just mine. Certainly, we are allowed to pray for our own needs this is not excluded from that we are taught that in other places the the point is that we are not to be exclusively concerned only with ourselves we're going to come back to that again and again as we work our way through this prayer but prayer to our father should be a reminder that the kingdom of god is composed of all kinds of people in all kinds of places. It's composed of people from every tongue and tribe and nation, every socioeconomic group, every race, every culture, and even every person of opposing political perspectives. Our Father. Many of these brothers and sisters have needs like we do. They're hurting even as some of you may be. The corporate responsibility is we need to keep one another in mind and others even that we don't know. The second thing that we see here just in this phrase, our Father in heaven, is the confident expectation that this prayer encourages. I don't know about you, but I often look at what's going on in the world, whether it's a a pandemic of virus, or whether it's a pandemic of division over race, racism, and other situations. I often look at things and I think, Lord, help. What, where is the answer? What's going to happen here? What can I do, if anything, about this? Well, I can pray. I can pray with the expectation that God is disposed to hear and answer. Now, he doesn't always do it in my time. He doesn't always do it necessarily in the way that I think he should or hope he will. But I have a confident expectation that he will hear and he will answer. What leads me to say that? Well, a number of things. First of all, the designation of God as Father was pretty new for the people of Jesus' day. It occurs very rarely in the Old Testament. The Jews preferred exalted titles for God, like Sovereign Lord, King of the Universe, and things like that. But again and again and again, Jesus called God his father. 
And not only that, he taught his disciples to do the same. And the, the word here that Jesus would have used would have been the Aramaic word Abba, which is not quite as familiar as Daddy, but it's close. It's very intimate, very personal. And it refers to all those who belong to the family of God through faith in Christ. There, it is true that in one sense, all our children, or that is all our creatures of God, we're part of God's creation. But to be able to call God Father and to know that He hears and answers our prayer requires that we are rightly related to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, says it like this. While God is fatherly in His attitude toward all, He is Father in truth only to those who become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Which leads me to say this. Whether you're here on the grounds or whether you're watching and listening over the stream, if you have not come to the place in your life where you have this intimate, personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, stop right now and confess your need, your sinfulness to God. Admit that you are a sinner and that your sin has separated you from God and turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as Savior. If you need to talk about this, you can contact the church office and we'll be happy to set up uh, a time to talk with you about this. We can call God our Father because Jesus has purchased this right for us. In John 1, we read that as many as believe on Him have the right to be called His children. The Apostle John wrote this in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We can call God our Father and know that He is favorably disposed toward us. Thus, Jesus taught us to pray with confidence. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, we read this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, that is, in comparison to God, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The good things that God 
commits to give to us are not limited merely to physical and material needs. In fact, they're not necessarily primarily those kinds of needs. For example, James in James 1.5 wrote this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's a good word. Any of you lack wisdom? You don't have to raise your hand. I already know, all right? The Apostle John adds this again in 1 John 5, 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now again, the key there is according to his will. How do we know if it's according to his will? The only place we can find God's will is in God's word. God's word and prayer go hand in hand. And when we have a promise from God in his word, we can know that he will hear and answer that boy just this phrase our father in heaven should give us confidence confident expectation that God will hear and answer our prayers the last thing that we see in this phrase is the reverent approach that this prayer requires the reverent approach. We are praying to our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, who is the eternal creator, the ruler, and the judge of all. The unchanging, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign of the universe. Listen to what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40. If you want to turn there, do that. Just take a moment. Isaiah 40, beginning of verse 18. It's a lengthy passage, and so it would be good to, to follow along. It's familiar, though. You've read it a thousand times, maybe. Well, maybe not a thousand, but a lot. Isaiah 40, beginning of verse 18. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Uh, he's contrasting our sovereign God with these idols. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from, from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. In other words, the rulers of the world are like nothing. God raises them up and gets rid of them as he will. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, Lord, don't you know what's going on? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Hang on. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is our Father, but He is our Father in heaven, which means that we need to approach Him with reverence. Yes, confidence, but also reverence. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes this, When Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Our Father, He was addressing men who, all, who were already convinced of the awesomeness of God's transcendence, the grandeur, the grandeur of God's inexpressible exaltation. When they first timidly prayed, Our Father in heaven, no doubt they deeply felt the tremendous privilege of approaching this marvelous God in so personal and intimate a fashion. But today, those who have lost sight of God's transcendence can no longer cherish the sheer privilege of addressing Him as Father. Fortunately, there are still believers who, with solemnity, meaning, and, and dignity, join together to sing some such praise as this, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight, all praise we would render, oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. So, as I think about our world and the mess that it's in, I am so grateful that I can pray, Our Father in heaven. That I can take not only my needs, but our needs to him that I have confident expectation that he is a father who is favorably disposed toward me to hear and to answer those prayers and that he is the God who can do something about it. So whatever you do, don't despair. And before you do anything, pray. Prayer is action. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything except pray. But it may mean that we shouldn't do anything unless we have prayed and prayed a lot. 
And when we pray as Jesus taught us, remember our corporate responsibility, our confident expectation, and our reverent approach to him. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. Lord, in this day when there's so much over which we have little or no no control, we thank you, O God, that you are a God who controls all. And you are God, Lord, who is able to hear and willing to hear and answer the prayers of your people. Father, we do ask that you'd give us wisdom. We ask, Lord, that you would restrain our ungodly, sinful, and selfish impulses. We pray, Lord, that whenever we think, we would think as you do. Whenever we speak, we would speak in a way that would bring encouragement and healing and grace rather than dissension or division. We pray, Father, that we would indeed speak the truth, but we would speak the truth in love. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to hear and to answer in accordance with your will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.